Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science infuse into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this summer edition, we'll feature Dark Matter with Joe Silk, Ancient Mice Draculas, Rejuvenated from Young Blood, but first, Skin Hunger. 20th century psychologist Harry Harlow established that all primates, including humans, need to be touched from babyhood onwards. His experiments included giving baby monkeys terry cloth mothers that either provided food or not, and wire mothers that provided food or not. The baby monkeys only clung to the wire mothers that provided food. But they always clung to the terry cloth mothers, whether they provided food or not. Primates and all people need touching all their life. This goes to the heart of why solitary confinement is a form of torture and not just a punishment. People who have experienced months of solitary confinement emerge as broken people. In this context, how interesting that human males in many cultures are touched less as babies than female babies, and adult men are strongly discouraged from touching anyone outside of a sexual or family relationship. They are less of a man if they do. Yet women in the same societies can never be less of a woman. I spoke with polymath Matthew Hall and counsellor and hypnotherapist Melinda Hall King about the phenomena of skin hunger or touch hunger amongst men in our culture. A lot of times, and actually through 13 plus when the boys get all their testosterone and all that sort of thing just going crazy, boys become very disassociated with the rest of their body except for their penis. They learn through socialization and such that um, you've got to be tough someone hits you you don't you don't go ow you've got to just you know wipe it off or whatever and 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 be tough and that works to a certain extent for for most people but for some men it's all about the cock you can dissociate too far exactly right you yes absolutely that disassociation is uh, what you what what as women we observe when you have your head down and your shoulders hunched and you're trying to dance on the dance floor but you're not actually, you're not opening yourself to anything else. So what you're actually doing, what that sounds like, the defensiveness to me, yes. the way you've put it in the context of development, yes. it's also like one of the things boys learn in schools is to avoid being a target of other boys, yes. particularly of bullies. Yes. And where defense, you don't want to attract attention to yourself. Exactly right. You don't want to appear open. That's All those right. things are exactly what you want to present to a woman. You don't um, want to present to other men. You don't want to present to other men. It makes you vulnerable. Mm. And vulnerability is attractive, but mm. it's also attractive to bullies. Mm. So there's a bit of a conflict. And of with course, it there's a fine line. You know, it, mm. it can't be easy having to go through that uh, and and try and find where you're you're most comfortable. And um, but it's the the men who can uh, overcome that and and choose to dance like there's no one there. Yes. They're the ones who not only make it um, uh, socially with women, but tend to make it more in life because they have the passion to just do it 
instead of going, what will everyone think of me? Oh my God, I'm going to get beaten up. They just have take that extra step and go, you know what? Life's too short. It's worth the risk. It's worth the risk. And the dissociation is interesting too, because yeah. part of that, I think, is in our culture particularly, boys get touched less often than girls, just generally by everyone around them. Mm-hmm. And that gets that gets more extreme as you get older, when you become a teenager and so forth, there's less and less and less. Because in male culture, almost the only touching other than shaking hands that's acceptable between men mm. might be in sports. And oh, maybe absolutely. It's, it's in um, sports that are either um, organised sports or, you know, just mucking around with your mates. But that's really just sport. It is. Um, and it really devolves into wrestling, except in organised sports where it's sanctioned, like, you know, rugby. <laughs> or wrestling. <clears throat> you know, which is appropriate grouping. So the only time... <laughs> but yeah, you're right, there's very little touching. <laughs> so... Sanctioned groping, I love it. <laughs> so the only time you put your arm around another guy is going to be at a sporting match or a celebration afterwards mm. or drinking afterwards... Something like that. So there's yeah, a lot in, of... In the extreme. Now, it doesn't have to be this way. No, 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 no. And, and you do have to get out of your head a little bit and go, no, actually, it's okay to hug somebody. No, but that, mm-hmm. I'm not talking about hugging. I'm talking about mm-hmm. the more casual stuff. Like, like, like whether it, anything from holding hands to yep. arm around the shoulders or, mm. or any of those things that are affectionate, that are part of, part of again, part of the ladder yeah. of, of sexual behaviour mm. and courtship and, and intimacy and closer friendship and all those things that may or may not lead to sex. Oh, the feminine side of our all culture, it's all natural, it's all yes. part of everyday life. Holding hands, life. looking arms, walking down the street, that's all fair game. It's that's all fair nobody, game. It's, nobody thinks, nobody thinks any less or more or anything of you for women. Yeah. But oh, for men, we, we get frowned at you get. Uh, uh, holding, uh, holding hands or, or linking arms. We still get that. Yeah. I do it anyway. Because, but, uh, you know. yeah, but I think there's a difference between frowning at and completely avoiding the behaviour. See, guys just completely avoid that behaviour because it's... Going to get you... Um, going to get you I, in I, trouble. It's yeah. either going to get you beaten up or discriminated against or because the guys are going to think you're gay, they're worried the girls are going to think you're gay. There's oh, a whole of thing of, of not mm. be, not being a target, and, and because being a woman, mm. you're born a woman, and you are a woman. Mm. As a man in our culture, mm. being born a man's not enough. You've got to prove you're a man forever. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, you're less than a man. Right. If you don't have the stones for this, if you don't have the balls for that, you don't have balls. Well, I do, well, but, but I'm not doing. Things, yeah. But I'm not doing what you think a man should do. Mm, I'm not mm. stepping up and being a man. I'm not. If you can't drink half this. a case of beer every night, you're not a man. And yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. If you're not taking the risk, if you're not doing whatever the male role is, whatever it is, then, it, then you're not a man. But yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. So there, there's that as well, which means there's skin hunger, and it means being touched and touching isn't necessarily so natural, mm. and they have to think about it. So there's all of that as well mm. in there, and that all makes it more complicated That's and less natural. Mm. I know we're diverging, but you know, it's touch classes. Stuff. Touch classes. <laughs> Such things exist. Go to California. You'll the, find oh all no, this sort there, of stuff. there are cuddle. Oh, what are cuddle sessions or whatever they call them here? Mm. There's a group that runs them, but they're really expensive, and it's sort of like an orgy where you don't get to have sex. Mm. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Explicitly not allowed. 
Because they can be. Because they can be, and mm. because okay. people really want the touching. Yeah. Touch hunger, absolutely. Um, there's a skin yeah. hunger, for sure. And, and mm. yet they've shown it's not just babies that need constant touching no, and skin. No. It's part of the human condition. Well, um, again, when you're talking about the babies, because I'm, gonna, I'm always going to go back developmentally. Uh, both of, of our children, I massaged all the time, back rubs and rubbed their arms and legs and that sort of thing, because of that, because just, the, hmm. just touch, actual touch, it decreases your heart rate. It, it gives you a, a sense of belonging and all that sort of thing. Massive you know? physiological improvements. Yeah. yeah and, and as babies, it's really easy to do. You, you know, you put your, place your hands on their head and you just run your hand all the way down their body. And, you, you know, you do that. It's, you know, full body stroking that you do as a mm. baby. And that's, yeah, it's very important stuff. Mm. Um, and I suppose if you look at, go to the primate societies. Oh, they're you always see, grooming. You see a lot of that touching all the totally. time. Yeah. Uh, and there's no gender divides there. Monkeys have their hands all over each other all the time. Why? Because, you know. Because we need it. Because you need it. And whoop, we're not that far away. Mm. We aren't. We aren't. So that's that's another trap for guys. Mm. That they, they have to learn to get yeah. around. Yeah. yeah. If they're new. <laughs> not, not, not just touching men, but touching women. You Being able to, being able to touch without expecting sex out of it is a very big thing. Yes. Um, you know, give, give your girlfriend a, a, or wife a back massage because she'd like it. Rub her feet because, you know, it'd be feeling nice. And quite often it'll lead to sex, but, but don't push it as, as always. No, absolutely. You and know, that's, that's, that's probably a good general relationship rule yeah. is do things because you're going to please your partner and it may end up being, being full play eventually because... So, you know, go to night school, learn how to give a back rub. Yeah, exactly. I've heard people say that too much of anything is not good for your baby. But I don't know about that as many times as we've loved. And we've shared love and made love. It doesn't seem to me like it's enough. It's just not enough, baby. It's just not enough. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SER, and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. In 2005, a team of biologists at Stanford University School of Medicine in California released a scientific paper called Rejuvenation of Aged Progenitor Cells by Exposure to a Young Systemic Environment. This research is really about life extension by consuming the blood of the young. Scientific vampirism with glow-in-the-dark mice at Stanford University has given elderly mice the ability to recover their youth. Professor Thomas Rando's team have discovered that young blood from young mice will rejuvenate old mice. All they had to do was hook up their blood circulation together. In a process called heterochronic parabiosis, the old mouse and the young mouse were circulating the same blood. One of the biggest differences between young people and old people is that young people's injuries heal fast, and old people's injuries don't heal well, often not at all. It turns out that your body's natural healing processes are regulated by signals communicated from the injury site to specialised stem cells. 
They're told to migrate towards the injury and turn into the cells needed to heal. These specialised progenitor stem cells are still present in elderly people and they are still listening for the signal. It's just that they're not being broadcast the instruction to heal anymore. Unlike embryonic stem cells, which could become anything, progenitor cells have begun the path to specialisation. Progenitor cells are committed stem cells that will only become one kind of cell when they're given the right signal. These progenitor cells hang out as satellite cells in the body's organs. Our bone marrow is full of blood progenitor cells, which are stimulated by the recombinant protein erythropoietin to make billions of new blood cells every day. Inflammation is part of the body's response to injury. Progenitor cells are involved in keeping inflammation of the damaged area under control, making sure the body's arteries run smoothly. Inflammation is a key part of atherosclerosis, the disease that causes fatty deposits to build up in the lining of the arteries. It's also a large part of arthritis, another disease of old age. It may be that the inflammation goes out of control in these diseases because of a failure of communication of the right signals to the progenitor cells from old blood. If you give old mice young blood by hooking up their veins with a young mouse in a parabiotic pairing for five weeks, then their muscle and liver injuries heal just as fast as the young mice. The difference is due to signaling chemicals in the young blood. Muscle progenitor cells have a protein switch on their surface called notch. Injured muscles make a signal chemical delta. And this activates notch, telling the cells to heal the injury. Older mice had less delta in their injured muscles than the young mice until they were sharing the young blood. And it wasn't just muscles that benefited from the young blood. Liver injuries healed in the old mice as well. The BRM protein develops in old livers and seems to block the E2F hormone signal that tells the liver progenitor cells to heal the liver. This is reversed when the young blood is circulated. In his 1941 novel Methuselah's Children, Robert Heinlein's future rejuvenation treatment is mainly about replacing all of the old blood tissue in an old person with new young blood. So how did they know that the rejuvenation was caused by factors in the blood and not by young cells from the young mice transplanting themselves through the common blood supply into the old mice? Well, they genetically engineered the young mice to have cells that glow in ultraviolet light. The old mice had non-glowing cells. So when the old mice became youthful, all they had to do was shine ultraviolet light on them and see if the healed injuries glowed. None of the old mice glowed, so the researchers were certain that the young blood was causing the fast healing in the old mice. Hormones are the chemical communication system of the body. It seems to be that the young hormones are not being produced as much in the older animals. This may tie in with those people who are changing their hormone balance with caloric restriction diets. They eat less calories than normal and their body chemistry changes in a way that has proved to cause mice to live longer. People who have tried this have found so many hormonal systems change that women have to change back to a normal diet if they want to have children. You could imagine the Red Cross putting the age of the donor on the bottle with the blood type and there being a whole international black market in young blood. The hope for an effective and ethical treatment lies in synthetic hormones. Blood tissue is very complex with thousands of sugars and proteins and hormones 
It may take some time to isolate which hormones are sending which signals for healing and rejuvenation. They know that delta will rejuvenate muscle, E2F will rejuvenate livers, they just have to identify the signals for brain, bone and other cells. They've already developed and tested a delta mimicking drug that rejuvenates mice muscle cells and it should work equally well in humans. How can the old recover the powers of youth? It's all about communication. So old mice vampires, using the signals in the blood of glow-in-the-dark young mice, may help elderly people recover from disease and injury, just like young people. In 2007, I spoke with Professor Joe Silk, director of the Beecroft Institute for Particle Astrophysics and Cosmology at the University of Oxford, about dark matter and the cosmos. Astronomy is about things that are bright or shiny. What's interesting about stuff that's neither? So the problem is that when we study the stuff that's bright and shiny, we infer from our studies that there's ten times as much that is invisible. And we call this dark matter. And we know it's there just from studying the properties of the stars that we see and their distribution around the Milky Way, for example. So what we see in the sky doesn't really explain what we see in the sky. There's something else going on. Exactly. And this dominant form of matter in the universe is critical because, you know, it's like you can't expect the tail to wag the dog, right? Mm. So uh, it's the dominant form of matter that controls eventually how the stars are formed, and we have to understand that. Some of the evidence for this dark matter is it what things like the large-scale structure of the universe? Right. So the best evidence, and the first evidence really, came from studying uh, clusters of galaxies. And this was realized in the 1930s by a remarkable astronomer called Fritz Wittgenheim. Swiss American guy, and he noticed that uh, a cluster of galaxies, that's a collection of thousands of galaxies in the sky, all more or less at the same distance, and he was able to use measurements of the motions of these galaxies, which he measured by the Doppler shift using this spectrum of their light, um, were such that the galaxies should fly apart from each other, just like imagine a swarm of bees should basically move away and, and dissolve, and so the cluster shouldn't be there. And he said, well, something is keeping it together. And he inferred that 10 times more mass than could be seen in the stars was present, basically ensuring that the orbits of those galaxies just uh, kept on turning back about themselves and they just did not depart. Right? They were just attracted back to where they were by this dark matter that one couldn't see. And his realization that 10, 90% of the cluster was dark has been confirmed by much more detailed and just beautiful modern observations. So could dark matter be black holes? Well, um, let's see. So there are various possibilities for the dark matter. One of them would be black holes. Uh, these are probably not black holes made by collapsing stars, which is one way to make black holes, because if that were true, we would see these explosions, and we, we, we see some, but not nearly enough. Um, but they could be black holes left over from very early in the universe. So that certainly is one, you know, we call those primordial black holes. And so that's, that is certainly one, one possible explanation. Hmm. Uh, another possibility for the dark matter is that it's some sort of very weakly interacting particle, uh, as yet undiscovered. A wimp. Uh, a weakly interacting massive particle, a wimp. That's right. Um, and, and these are um, certainly a candidate for the dark matter. So that's very different to ordinary matter. Yes. So the main difference is in their degree of interaction. So ordinary matter basically clusters and makes stars and planets like the Earth. 
But it, that's because um, ordinary matter might have a positive charge. If it's a proton or negative, it's an electron. Those, those charges and also the nuclear forces that one finds inside the nuclei are rather strong forces. And they mean that atoms can collect together to make stars, for example, whereas if you have particles that have really weak interactions, then they just essentially pass through us and they essentially would reside in the outer parts of the galaxies where the dark matter is. And so our hypothesis is that the dark matter most plausibly consists of these weakly interacting elementary particles that we are still searching for and have not yet discovered. The main way you'd be able to detect these is by the mass would be the main property that they have? Well, exactly. The, the mass and also the fact that when they run into each other, they occasionally would self-destruct and give you uh, x-rays, for example, or some, some form of radiation one might hope to see. And so because the, the vast spaces of our galaxy are full of these dark particles, we have experiments in space now, special telescopes, X-ray telescopes, gamma-ray telescopes, that are looking for faint glows from the middle of nowhere that could be um, due to these dark matter particles running into each other and annihilating with each other. And are there also, there's machos that astronomers are looking for as possible dark matter? Right, so, so what the dark matter could also be would be macroscopic objects such as black holes from the very early universe left over black holes or even dark stars and um, we call these massive compact objects macho is the acronym aha uh -huh. so wimps and machos macho or wimp okay and and these machos would be more or less the weight have the mass of a star or, or something between the mass of the earth and the mass of a star and so there's certainly a candidate that we have to try to, to verify its existence. And a group of Australian astronomers um, with UK colleagues, American American colleagues, worked out a very clever way to, to look for these using telescope that uh, was on Mount Stromlo for many, many years until it got destroyed in the fire four years ago. And they built a gigantic camera with this telescope. And what they looked for, amazing experiment really, was they studied the large Magellanic Cloud, and they monitored millions of stars every night in the large Magellanic Cloud. And whenever a macho went in front of one of these, which would happen, you know, every now and then had to happen if the machos were there, it would cause the light from one of these background stars to basically be magnified. Gravity does magnify light because it bends light, just like a lens does. And so they would look for very occasional, very rare light changes, and they found uh, over six years of observation, some, some 10 or 20 events that they suggested were possible evidence for these machos. Mm. So, so it's a possibility, I would say. That's the final conclusion from their experiment. Can't rule this out. Wasn't there an observation a month or two ago where there was an astronomical object that was gravitationally lensed and it was doubled? and they went to look for what the large mass was in between that had bent the light, and they couldn't see anything. And this was possible evidence of dark matter. Right. So dark matter, when it's collected in, into a, an object like a galaxy, if you look at background objects, background galaxies, then the light from those passes through the dark matter, which is perfectly transparent, you can't see anything, um, but it does if, uh, bend the light and magnifies it. And that results in having a double image, for example, of the background galaxy, this, this lensing effect. And this has been seen in various cases, and sometimes you simply find no evidence at all of the object that's doing the lensing, and you, and you assume 
deduce that if indeed uh, no, there is this gravitational lens there, it's got to be something very dark indeed. So that's another way of trying to study or to show that dark matter exists. And there are cases of that now, several examples. Right. Are there any other ways we might be able to detect dark matter? So what one can imagine doing experiments which would um, use the fact that if the dark matter consists of many weak electric particles, that these actually pass through us, millions pass through our bodies every second, um, they leave almost, they don't interact at all essentially, but if we have a large enough detector, um, which might consist of some very sensitive um, detection device which could measure tiny, tiny amounts of heat deposited, um, then every now and then one of these particles would collide with atoms in this detector, leave a trace of heat behind. And so scientists are building giant experiments, large-scale experiments, deep underground to avoid the cosmic rays, which can cause spurious signals, looking for traces of heat from these dark matter particles. So, so far they've found nothing, but they believe that they simply have to build larger experiments to really test the hypothesis properly. It's early days yet. It's early days yet. And, of course, the, the, the other way um, this problem is being approached is using atom-smashing machines, such as the Large Hadron Collider, which is under construction in Geneva, um, a big European atom-smashing device, which will test our knowledge of elementary particles and basically by smashing protons into antiprotons. And indeed, if one can prove that every now and then when one has a high-energy event, um, this produces some incredibly weakly interacting particle, um, you see basically um, particles on one side of, of an event balanced what, what should be other particles if they were ordinary particles, but you see nothing. That is evidence of a very weakly interacting particle, which would itself then be a candidate for the dark matter. That would be the same sort of particles that we conjecture might be the dark matter. So one of the goals of this experiment will be to look for this, for this evidence. That was Professor Joe Silk explaining the wimps and machos that make up the dark things in the universe. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. You can send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. And tell us your thoughts, feelings and stories. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website www.diffusionradio.com That's www.diffusionradio.com If you live in Sydney and you'd like to contribute to Science Radio, we need more volunteers at Diffusion. Send us an email. Contributing to the program were Matthew Hall and Melinda Hall-King. I produce Diffusion in the studios of 2SCR in Sydney. And Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.